For the last two Wednesday nights, we've been talking about these chapel windows in here. And uh, as we have said, and as most all of you know, uh, there are 45 stained glass windows in here. And beginning back there and all the way around, it is a chronological overview of the life of Christ. Beginning with the angel Gabriel telling Mary that she would be the mother of the Messiah to his birth in Bethlehem. All the way around, and last week we saw his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension when he went back to heaven. I don't think last Wednesday night that I pointed out the significance of the two lower windows under the ascension window. So let me do that now. Uh, One of those is a picture. It looks like a sword. It's kind of like that. And it's, it's uh, the two first letters in the Greek alphabet of the name of Christ, the chi and the rho. And when you put the way those letters are shaped together and then the way they've done that window, they cross each other. But it's symbolic of his first two letters of the name Christ. But it also forms a cross. And so that's what one of those windows is. And the other one is a crown because we know that when Jesus comes back for the Battle of Armageddon, that he will be wearing a crown on his head because he is the ultimate champion and victor. Amen? And so that's what that's about. Now, what I want to do tonight is to focus on the cross in front of you and behind me, and that is this beautiful cross that is, uh, that is back there. It is the largest window uh, in, the, uh, in the chapel, and you see that there are rays of light that are going out of the cross, and the reason that that's like that, because we were hopeful that when people come into the chapel for a funeral, for a wedding, for a worship service like this, for whatever occasion, that their eyes would just naturally look up and see the cross. And so that's, that's why it's there. Because we know that in the cross there is salvation. In the cross there is, a, there is new beginning. In the cross there is life. And in the cross, did you know that in the cross there is physical healing for diseases? Did you know that? I know you do know that, but there is. In Isaiah, let me give you a verse to write down. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, it says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. And then I think verse 5 says, by his stripes you are healed. And so in the cross of Christ, we find not only forgiveness for our sins and salvation for our souls, but in the cross, we find healing for our bodies, physical healing for our bodies. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 8. I want to show you a verse because you have every right to question that statement that I just made. And you may be thinking, now, wait a second. I know that in the cross, there is salvation. But now, I don't know if I believe that there's healing in the cross. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Let me show you what it says in Matthew chapter 8 and verse number. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. And so when Jesus was on the earth during those years of his public ministry... One of the things he did was heal sick people. He did that regularly. And in verse 17, it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And so when Jesus went to the cross, not only did he take our sins, he took our sicknesses and he took our diseases. Now, we know that ultimately we will all be healed in heaven. 
That is where the permanent and complete healing happens. But we also know that many times God heals uh, on earth. He heals us even in our physical bodies. And this verse is proof of that. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Think about this. Had Jesus Christ not died on that cross and then been raised from that uh, grave, we never would have received healing. We would have just died sick and it would have been over. But even if we don't receive healing in this life, we receive healing in the next because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross. And so when he went to the cross, he took every sin and he took every sickness and every disease and every illness so that all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ would ultimately be healed and freed from all those diseases. Many times it happens on earth Always it happens in heaven. I think many times when it comes to sicknesses, we think if the healing doesn't come on earth, then the healing just didn't come. But that's a very short-sighted way to look at it because the ultimate healing for all of our sicknesses and diseases comes when we get to heaven. We get our new bodies and we'll be with the Lord. But keep in mind, had it not been for the cross, we wouldn't go to heaven to begin with. So we would have just died and the illness would have gotten us and there would have been no life after that. But because of the cross, we can have healing. And so that's why those rays of light are coming out of the cross because it is to say to us that just like Uh, sunshine provides warmth for the body. The cross of Christ provides forgiveness, salvation, and healing either here or when we get to heaven. And so what I want to do in the message tonight is I want to make four statements about the cross that I think are uh, fairly comprehensive and certainly practical and some things that we need to be reminded of from time to time. But before we get into that, turn to the Gospel of John in chapter number 12. Because this is why I'm talking on the cross tonight, not only because of that window up there, but because of a promise Jesus made. And in John chapter 12, in verse 32, he's talking about his own crucifixion. But what he said about his crucifixion applies uh, not only to the literal cross that he died on then, but it applies today when a person lifts up and, and shares Christ with someone else. Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And so Jesus says, if you will lift me up, if you will focus on me, Jesus says to the preacher, whatever you're preaching on, make sure you talk about the cross. Make sure you lift up the cross. Make sure you help people to see that from the cross there are rays of light. And in those rays of light, there's forgiveness, there's salvation, there's healing, there's hope, there's a new beginning, there's comfort, there's whatever it is they need. And Jesus said, if I'm lifted up from the earth, we'll draw all peoples to myself. It's amazing to me how often... When you just talk to somebody about Jesus, how often uh, that person is saved. I just came out of a meeting with a friend who I've known uh, since 1988. So that's been over 30 years now. He was on staff at a church that my dad used to pastor before he became the pastor of this church. And he was sharing a story just a few moments ago. He said, John, when I first came on staff there of that church... He said, your dad was always trying to get us to share our faith and to go out into the community and tell people how to be saved. And uh, he used to, he just taught us how to do that. And he said, I remember we used to go out every Monday night. Churches used to do that every Monday night, go out and make visits. And he said, one night 
And he was telling that story. My dad was sitting next to me on the couch. I don't even know if my dad remembered it. But he said, he said, John, one night your dad went out to visit somebody, visit a family who had visited our church the week before. But by accident, he went to the wrong house. And he knocked on the door and, and he said, I'm, uh, Dr. I'm Charles Redmond, pastor of First Baptist. And, uh, and we were glad, I'm glad that you were at church last Sunday. And uh, the family said, well, we're glad you're who you are, but we weren't at your church last Sunday. And we don't know who you are. And Jim said, you know, your dad used that occasion to share Christ with him, and those people got saved. He went to the wrong house, and they got saved. And it's just a reminder to me that when we lift up Jesus and when we tell people about Jesus, we never know what God might do. And so tonight, it, you know what? It may be in this service tonight. Now, here it is, Game 7 of the World Series. Let me go and take my watch off. That will make some of you more comfortable so I can be mindful of the time. It's kind of cool. And tomorrow night is October 31st, our trunk or treat. A lot of people coming to church tomorrow night. And so a lot of things working against this service. But you know what it may be tonight that somebody gets saved right here in this service tonight. Because we're talking about the cross and we're lifting up Jesus. And what I'm saying to you is what Jesus said. If we will lift him up, we will find in Jesus Christ whatever it is we need for our souls, for our minds, for our bodies, or for our emotional well-being. I'm telling you tonight, friend, the answer to your question is not only found in Jesus and from Jesus. The answer to your question is Jesus. He is, the, he is ultimately what all of us are looking for one way or the other. So four statements tonight about the cross. Number one, the cross is the place where God's justice and God's mercy meet. That's what the cross is. God's justice and God's mercy come together at the cross. His justice, because God is too holy not to punish sin. God is righteous God is a just judge, and even today in the world in which we live, if somebody goes and appears before a court, and the court uh, listens to the arguments, and the judge, let's just play, play like that the judge is making the ruling, and the judge knows full well that the person in front of him or her is guilty, and yet the judge says, well, I'm going to pronounce them not guilty, knowing that they are guilty. Well, the Bible says that kind of judge is an abomination because in the sight of obvious guilt, you have to pronounce guilt. The judge is there to enforce the law. And so if a judge would be unjust to pronounce an, a guilty person innocent or not guilty, then God would be unjust to pronounce sinners not guilty. I mean, that he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous. He would lose the core of his character. And so at the cross of Jesus Christ, what did God do? God found a way to punish sin. That's what the cross is all about. It is punishment for our sin. You see, every sin that has ever been committed by you, me, or anybody else will be punished. It will either be punished on Christ at the cross or it will be punished, that person will be punished for it in eternity in hell. But every sin will be punished. And so God devised a way for all of our sins to be paid for on Jesus Christ. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a verse that I hope you have marked in your Bible. But if you don't, you should. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says very simply... Let me let you find it. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, For God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The cross is the place where Jesus took our sin and offers us his righteousness. And so on the cross, our sins were placed on him, God's justice. But it is also God's mercy. It's God's mercy in that God is saying, if you will place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven and you don't have to go to hell. You don't have to pay for your own sins. You don't have to live a life of guilt and regret and shame and wishing you could go back and do the whole thing over again. No, if you'll give Christ your faith and trust him, in that moment he will give you his righteousness and save you. Theologians call that the great exchange, and it is the great exchange. Think about this. We can give Jesus Christ our sins and our faith in his death on the cross And in that moment, he forgives us and covers us with his righteousness, and he saves us. And we get a new beginning on life. And we're saved, and not only are we saved, the Bible says we're justified. In that moment, when you get saved, you become justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means just as if it never happened. Whatever sin that you have ever committed that you wish you could turn back the time, turn back the calendar, and undo that moment or undo that season of your life and just just have a second chance. God says you can have a second chance because what I'm going to do, I'm going to forgive you so thoroughly that it will be just as though that never happened in your life. Now, that doesn't mean there might not be consequences for, for the sin. What, you know, some sins have maybe a consequence, but it, doesn't, but it does mean that in the eyes of God, you're not having to carry that sin around with you. It says in Psalm 103 that God has not dealt with us according to our sins. Think about that. When God looks at you, God doesn't take into account your former sins when he decides whether or not to bless you. When God looks at me, God doesn't say, well, I would bless John and give him this or answer this prayer or do so and so for him. But after all, when he was in high school or when he was in college or whenever, he committed this sin and now I'm not going to be able to bless him. No, if God did it like that, he would be dealing with me according to my sins. And he would be saying, I would have blessed you better, but because of your sins, I'm having to hold back. But that wouldn't be in keeping with God's forgiveness. Because when he forgives, it is just as if it never happened. The record is cleansed. Our sins are expunged. In the eyes of God, we are pure and white as the, as, and pure and white as the driven snow. And God sees us as though we had never committed any sin at all. And so the cross is the place where God's justice and God's mercy meet and they come together. Second thought about the cross that to me is equally as interesting, and that is while Jesus died on the cross in approximately 30 A.D., that was the year Jesus died, the cross was in the mind of God from eternity past. From eternity past. Let me give you a scripture verse. You can just write it down. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it talks about the, the book of life of the Lamb of God. And then it describes the Lamb of God this way. Slain from the foundation of the world. You see, in the mind of God, although Jesus had not actually died until A.D. 30, in the mind of God, Jesus died on that cross before Adam and Eve ever sinned in the Garden of Eden. From eternity past, he was slain in the mind of God uh, from the foundation of the world. Why? Because God knew that when Adam and Eve came into the world that they would sin. 
And God knew that we, their offspring, would all sin too. And so before our great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, were ever created and made, God knew that they would sin, and God had already devised a way for their sins and our sins to be forgiven. So Jesus was killed in the mind of God from eternity past. That's how people in the Old Testament got saved. I think sometimes we have the idea, well, people in the Old Testament got saved by offering up their sacrifices. Or people in the Old Testament got saved uh, in a different way, and then people in the New Testament, we get saved by the blood of Jesus. As though God had one method of saving in the Old Testament and another way of saving in the New Testament. No, God's only got one method of saving in either Testament, and it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, they looked forward to it. We looked backwards at it. They didn't understand it completely, and neither do we. But in the mind of God, when those Old Testament saints repented of their sins and placed their faith in God, now, they didn't know about Jesus going to die on the They didn't fully understand that, but they trusted all of God that God had revealed to them. And when they did that, at that moment, God covered them in the righteousness of Christ, just like God covers us in the righteousness of Christ. The only way a person can be saved is through the death of Jesus Christ. His death is our substitutionary death. Now, I want to show you some passages that I think are interesting. Three passages. Go to Genesis chapter number 3, show you a verse. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is the first reference we have in all the Bible to the death of Jesus Christ. Some call this the first gospel. The first gospel verse in all the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned, and sin now has entered the world, and God has pronounced a, a curse on Adam's work. Now they're in the flower beds. There are, there are thorns and there are thistles and there are briars and there are weeds. That was his punishment. That was really the consequence of his sin. For Eve, pain in child birth. You ladies, when you get to heaven, you better look Eve up now and tell her, you like to kill me down there uh, with that pain I went through having my baby. Well, uh, that's because of sin. Had, had, had sin never come into the world, Adam never would have agonized in his work. Eve never would have had any pain when she had babies, and neither would anybody else. And not only did God pronounce that on them, in verse number 14, God pronounced a curse on the serpent on the devil himself, who's in the form of a serpent. And it says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now look at verse 15, because here we have a prophecy, a hint, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. God said to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about Eve. He said, and between your seed and her seed. That's talking about Jesus, her seed. He, that is Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God was saying to the serpent, there's coming a day where a baby is going to be born through Eve, many generations down, that's going to be a part of her seed, and you're going to bruise his heel. In other words, you are going to cause pain 
to Jesus. This is a reference to Jesus. Let me just go ahead and say that God was saying to Satan, you're going to cause pain to Jesus. You're going to bruise his heel. And he did bruise his heel. And he bruised his whole body because Jesus died on that cross. And he took those nails. He took those crown of thorns. And he took those beatings. And so what God said proved true. You shall bruise his heel. So you're going to cause pain to Jesus. But look at the phrase before that. He shall bruise your head. He said, you may bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. In other words, he's going to inflict more damage on you than you're going to inflict on him. You're going to, where would you rather have pain, in your heel or in your head? Well, I'd rather not have it at all. But if I had to have it, I'd rather have it in my heel than in my head. Because if you hurt my heel, that's painful. But if you hurt my head, that could be catastrophic. And so what the Bible is saying here, there's coming a day when even though Satan is going to bring all kind of pain and suffering and agony and all this mess into the world, and even onto Jesus would that come, God said, Satan, you need to understand this. You may cause him some pain, but he's going to cause you and your kingdom more pain. He's going to bruise your head. That is, he's going to defeat you in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ will deliver a fatal blow to Satan and to the whole dominion of darkness, and he will have the ultimate victory over you. That's the first gospel. That's the proto-euangelion, the first time in all the Bible that we have a reference to what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. Now turn to Psalm 22. We're familiar with Psalm 23. In fact, in just a couple weeks, I want to do a sermon on Psalm 23 using that back window there on the 23rd Psalm. So we know Psalm 23, but Psalm 22 uh, is something we're not that familiar with. And yet Psalm 22 was written by David And it foreshadows the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Psalm 22 is called by some the fifth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Psalm 22. Why would it be called the fifth gospel? Because Psalm 22 tells us in great detail about the death that Jesus Christ would one day die for us. David wrote this psalm, interestingly enough, before crucifixion had ever been invented. And if that statement is not fully true, which I believe it is, some might say, no, crucifixion had been invented before David wrote this. But even if that's true, they would concede crucifixion had not become prevalent in the world. The Romans were really the ones. Now, I'm not saying the Romans invented crucifixion. I think it was invented before the Romans. I personally don't think it had been invented when Psalm 22 was written. But how do I know if nobody had been crucified? Maybe somebody had been crucified. But crucifixion was not a known form of execution back at this time like the Romans made it. And so when David wrote this psalm, he's talking about a form of death, crucifixion, that nobody really knew very much, if anything, about. Notice how he begins the psalm. See if you can't see Jesus in this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do those words sound familiar? Jesus spoke those words on the cross. He asked God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Look in verse number 7. All those who see me ridicule me. What did they do when Jesus was dying on that cross? They ridiculed him. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what was happening. Look in verse number 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast 
lots. And so Jesus, on Psalm 22, became, or on the cross, rather, became the fulfillment of Psalm 22. The, the, what David wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it was looking forward to an event that was many hundreds of years away from happening, about a thousand years away from happening. Now, one other one, go to Isaiah chapter 53. The fact is, if you could call Psalm 22 the fifth gospel, you might as well call Isaiah 53 53, the sixth gospel, because in this chapter, we, we read about the death of Jesus in such detail that it almost, almost makes you feel like Isaiah was standing at the foot of the cross watching him be crucified, which he wasn't, but God was telling Isaiah what to write. Look in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. See, everything that troubles you, Jesus took to the cross. Your griefs, your sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But watch verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Why did Jesus die? For your sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, your sins were placed on Jesus. He, the price for your sins has already been paid for. You only have two options. You can either accept it or refuse it. And if you refuse it, you have to pay for your sins yourself. Because God is just and God says... Who pays for your sins is up to you. He's saying, I'm offering you a way out. In the death of Christ, I'm offering you a way to have your sins freely forgiven. If you refuse that, if you don't accept Jesus, God says there's another alternative. You can pay for your own sins in eternity, in hell. That's what hell is. It is a place of punishment where people will pay for their own sins. Look in verse 7. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but watch this, but with the rich at his death. And wasn't Jesus buried in a rich man's tomb? Absolutely. Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Look at verse 10. This is an interesting verse. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now don't read past that. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. If I were to ask you a question. In fact, I've, thought, I've done a sermon on this. I thought about writing a booklet on this entitled, Who Killed Jesus? If I asked you tonight, who killed Jesus? Now don't answer out loud. Because you might answer wrong. And I don't want you to answer wrong. But if you were asked that question, how would you answer? Who killed Jesus? Someone would say, now, wait a second. I believe the Romans killed him because they are the ones in charge. And they were, it was those Roman soldiers who put those nails in. The Romans killed Jesus. There's a sense in which that's true. Some would say, well, no, I don't think it was the Romans. I think it was the Jews who killed Jesus. I mean, that, that trial was mockery, and they just turned him over to the Romans. So really, it wasn't, and, and when I say the Jews, I don't mean the majority of the Jews. I mean the Jewish religious leaders of that time. I don't mean the Jewish people as a whole. I mean, some might say it was the Jewish religious leaders. And you know, that answer is not all wrong, because the Jewish religious leaders... Uh, 
they, share, they have to shoulder their part of the responsibility for that, for what they did to Jesus. Some people would say, and I think this would probably be the most uh, Sunday school answer to that question, and it's, it's got truth to it. It's a true answer. Some would say, we killed Jesus. It was our sins that nailed him to the tree, and that's true. It was our sin. So all those answers have truth in them, but if you look in verse 10, you get an answer that you don't normally think about. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Did you know there's a sense in which the answer to that question, who killed Jesus, is this? God. God the Father killed Jesus. And not only did he kill him, it pleased him to bruise him because he knew that in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, there would be a forever payment for the sins of all the people who would ever live. And so God, in the, see, from Satan's perspective, when he, see, you could say Satan killed him because he's the one who entered Judas And Judas was the one that got the ball rolling for the crucifixion. So Satan had a role to play in the death of Jesus. So when Jesus was up there dying on that cross, Satan and all the fallen angels, those demons, were saying, finally, we're putting to death this one who claims to be the Messiah. And so Satan and hell were having a heyday and were having a party thinking they had gotten their way. But God in heaven was looking down and God was saying in his heart, in essence, Satan, you think that your will is being accomplished. What you don't understand is you're a tool, a pawn in my hand and through the death of Christ, my will is being accomplished because a payment is being made for the sins of the people. And so the devil thought, see, it's the same thing. Remember this in your life. Whatever the devil, whatever weapon the devil fashions against you, God will turn it around and cause that weapon to work to your advantage. The crucifixion was something Satan thought would destroy God and destroy Jesus. And yet the crucifixion was something that God used to fulfill his purpose and his plan from eternity past to pay for the sins of the whole world. And so it's amazing to me that it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him, but it pleased the Lord because he knew that in Christ once for all and forever a payment could be made for our sins, that the door would be open to heaven, the wall of separation separating us from God would be torn down. And that's why when Jesus died on that cross, there was an earthquake and the veil in the temple that separated the normal people from the most holy place, that veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If it had been torn from bottom to top, man could have done it. Torn from top to bottom, God did it. And when God did it, that was his way of saying, now you can come into the holy of holies. Now you can come into my presence. Now your sins no longer have to be a barrier. Somebody ought to say amen because that's some pretty good preaching right there. Point number three. And that is the cross is the bridge and the only bridge between heaven and earth. Now, we know what a bridge is. A bridge is something that connects two places that would otherwise not be connected. If you've ever driven into Louisiana, you know there's a long bridge. I think it's called Bro Bridge that connects us to them. And without that bridge, we would be unconnected. Well, a bridge does that. A bridge connects this, in, in, in California, there's a bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, and it connects Oakland and San Francisco. And if it weren't for that bridge, you'd have to swim across or you'd have to fly across, but you couldn't drive across. So they built a bridge. And the bridge basically says if you'll come this way, you can get to where you want to go. A lot easier, a lot more quickly. So the cross is the bridge and the only bridge between heaven and earth. The only way that you can go to heaven when you die 
is to come to Jesus Christ asking him to forgive you of your sins and to save your soul. That's the only way. Without that, you'll never, you'll never make it. Some people don't believe that. Some people think that they're going to live a good enough life and they're going to be so good at the end that God's going to let them into heaven. It, it would be like this. Let's play like after the service tonight. We went into the parking lot and we all got a rock in our hand. And we said, okay, now we're going to aim kind of southward and we're going to throw this rock as far as we can and see which one of us can make it to Galveston with our throw. And so I throw my rock and you throw yours. And when we all get finished throwing our rocks, some of your rocks may have gone farther than mine, but none of our rocks made Galveston. Galveston's too far to hit with a rock. Well, heaven's too far to hit with a perfect life. You may be better than I am, and you probably are. But I'll tell you this, you're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. Because the standard is not how do you compare to the person next to you or the person on the evening news or how even you compare to me. The question is, how do you compare to a holy, sinless God? There's perfection. And so the only way that we can go to his house is if we're made perfect. When I'm talking to a child about being saved, talking about heaven and so on, I always say to that child, I draw a picture of a heart, and I draw dirty marks in that heart. And I say, is that heart clean or dirty? Is that heart's dirty. And I say, let me ask you a question. Is heaven clean or dirty? They say, well, heaven's clean. I say, let me ask you another question. If you die with all those dirty sins in your heart, do you think God's going to let you into heaven? Do you think God's going to let a dirty heart into a clean heaven? The eyes get big. They say, well, no, I don't guess he is. Because if God let a dirty heart into a clean heaven, the dirty heart make clean heaven dirty. So I say, that's right. And so in order to get to heaven, we've got to get those dirty spots out of your heart. And the question is, how do we get them out? And there's only one answer, and that is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. There's a bridge. There's only one bridge that will join us and that connects uh, heaven and earth. And in the fourth statement, and I'm so encouraged by this, I want to show you one other verse, and then we'll stop. And that is the ground at the cross is level ground. The ground at the cross is level ground. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. Doesn't matter if you've been basically a good person or if you've been just a, a, a flagrant sinner out there. The ground at the cross is level ground. Kings can come and they have to. Presidents can come and they have to. Common people can come. We have to too. The ground at the cross is level ground. Whosoever will may come. One other verse, John chapter 6. Go back to John. We started there tonight. At least one of our first verses was in John. Go to John chapter 6 and verse number 37. I want to read this verse, give a brief explanation, and then I want to give you a chance tonight to be saved if you've never received Christ. John 6, 37 may be the clearest promise in all the Bible about how to be saved. It's a tremendous verse. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now notice this next phrase. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. There's the promise. Jesus said the person, the rich person, the poor person, the influential person, the unknown person, the religious person, the irreligious person, the good person, the bad person, the famous person, the unknown person. Jesus said the person who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. If you can show me a person who has ever come to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance 
and in genuine faith, asking for forgiveness of salvation, whom Jesus turned away and said, no, I will not save you. If you can show me that person, I will close my Bible and never preach again. But you can't show me that person because there is no such person. Because Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means. In the Greek language, it is a double negative. You know, in the English language, if you use a double negative, that second negative makes the first one positive. It negates itself. So if you say, that sermon ain't no good, okay, then what you've really said is, that sermon was excellent, right? Because it ain't no good. So it's, if it ain't no good, it's really good, right? In the English language, a double negative negates itself, and it comes back to the positive. But in the Greek language, a double negative strengthens itself. In other words, it emphasizes the point that it's making. When Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What he literally said was, the one who comes to me, I will by no means, under any circumstance, ever cast out. You can say it this way. The one who comes to me, I will never, ever, ever, ever cast out. But I will receive you, I will forgive you, and I will save you. And so tonight, if you've never come to Jesus, you don't, you don't get saved by joining a church or being baptized. You get saved by coming to Jesus Christ. And tonight, if you've never done that, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, Father, I pray for that man or woman tonight, that person in this service, maybe that person who will be listening to this later on, who's never been saved. I pray tonight they would come to you and prove your promise true that you would save them. All you have to do is pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I come to you asking you to forgive me, save me, come into my heart, and make me a Christian. And Lord, as I pray this prayer tonight, I trust you to do it. With all my heart, I trust you, Jesus. Lord, I do ask during this next song, give me the courage to come forward and make my decision public. In your name I pray. And all the people said, amen and amen.